Welcome and thanks for joining us on The Pivot, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we'll be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors in a meaningful way. We have prioritized guidance and practices that advance equity and remove barriers for the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized and oftentimes excluded. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the punitive approaches that often form part of institutions and a new opportunity to connect families to holistic and culturally relevant community supports. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to improve child and family safety. We hope that you will use these short yet meaningful dialogues to engage in discussions within your own organizations. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on another episode of Pivot Towards Promising Futures. My name is Wendy Mota. My pronouns are ella, she, her, hers, and I am your host today. We are so excited to have a very special guest with us today to talk about domestic violence and dating violence uh, within uh, the LGBTQ uh, community, specifically around uh, teenagers and teens. Um, and I would invite Andrew Santa Ana to please introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about uh, your work. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Wendy, I'm so grateful to be able to be in this space with you. I'm so excited about this podcast and our conversation today. Uh, my name is Andrew Santa Ana. I use the pronouns he and they is also fine. And I wear a couple hats coming to this conversation. I'm the director of law and policy at Day One, an organization where we work with young people who've experienced um, dating or sexual violence. So we serve folks in New York City, age 24 and under. The other hat that I wear is that I'm also an adjunct professor at New York Law School, where six years ago or I launched a clinic on cyber harassment. So I work with uh, folks who've experienced online stalking, non-consensual pornography, or other types of harm. Often those people are young people themselves. And so uh, it's a space where over the past decade, I've been able to develop some analysis and some expertise about uh, the experiences of young people, of queer folks, of young people and queer folks whose experiences of the world intersect with uh, social media and being online. Wow. I love it. So um, exciting to have this conversation. And I am just so appreciative of your uh, very particular expertise, which I think is going to be so useful and helpful for the field in general. Um, And so Andrew, I want to talk a little bit or, or maybe give our listeners a little bit of context. Most folks in the United States are very familiar with the origins of um, the domestic violence movement in this country, right? And so we, we've had similar conversations and, and we always kind of land in the space of, you know, it was developed for a particular group of women, um, particularly uh, white middle-aged women in this country. And a lot of... Uh, the landscape regarding services and interventions kind of came out of that. 
We've also um, talked about how the unintended consequence was really leaving out many groups um, that uh, obviously also needed services and interventions. And I think there is some movement um, in the field um, that is more inclusive, that is more progressive, and uh, there have been some advances. But today we're going to talk a little bit about and maybe pick your brain about, you know, what what does that actually look like? You know, Um, so maybe we can start with uh, your thoughts around primary prevention when it comes to dating violence. Yeah. So thank you so much for getting us started. You know, I want to just sort of add to what you're saying, Wendy. I think when we're talking about young people and queer people in particular, right, the domestic violence services field or the anti-violence services field hasn't necessarily fully adapted to the experiences of young people. So in that model where you're creating the experiences that center folks of a certain kind of experience, largely white or white passing, middle class, um, cisgender, heterosexual folks, right? What does it mean to adapt um, a system that wasn't designed for them? So when we're talking about uh, young people or LGBTQ folks in the domestic violence field, primary prevention might have a lot of parallels to it, but the system itself hasn't been created with them in mind. Uh And so what does that mean Uh for those conversations for young people? Uh Um, So I think, but as to your question around primary prevention, you know, this is, this is, I think, where the most exciting part of the work is. It's around what does it mean to start a conversation with a young person and a young queer person about consent, about boundaries, about recognizing certain things as kinds of harms um, and what does it mean to communicate through them or to to express how you're feeling about that. Often when we're talking about primary prevention, um, we ignore the fact that the experiences of young people in particular might be different um, or young queer people in particular might be a little bit different. How are young people meeting today versus how they met I don't know, a generation ago. How are Uh queer people making connections with other queer people now than they were generations ago? Um, How are young people sort of in this whatever stage of post or still in the pandemic or whatever it is, how are the lessons we learned from that um, lingering in conversations young people are having about being intimate, meeting up with each other, communicating with each other online, um, sharing intimate images, pictures, having phone calls, video chats, all of those things online. Um, so when we talk about all of how this, the field has shifted, a conversation about primary prevention includes, again, those those conversations with young people about what it what it looks like to say when something feels good, when something feels bad, how to say no. I think importantly, how to say yes. What does yes look like? What does it mean to center pleasure for young people? What does that mean? Um, And then I think also within the background of who are the people who are also part of that conversation, who are the schools, who are the parents, who are the service providers? What do the laws look like, right? Are, you know, if we're thinking about primary prevention as a mix of that prevention education, um, to what extent is that prevention education resourced by the community and resourced by government or other institutions, right? Are there laws around sex ed in your jurisdiction or around in your state or in your town or in your school district? What does it look like? Is that conversation one that is inclusive of LGBTQ experiences? Does it prioritize um, abstinence? Does it talk about sex and sexuality? Does it bridge conversations between how young people are meeting online? 
is it inclusive of non-binary and trans folks, right? So there's so many pieces of this, of, of primary prevention in, in the field that are that are conversations that are being had in many places and are being had in other places, yes, right? And so what does it mean yeah. for us to create spaces where, yeah, we can talk about things that might be uncomfortable or messy, but also reassure young people along the way that their experiences are valid, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Wow, that's a great response, Andrew. And I thank you so much for that because it also reminds us, as you started your response, really thinking about, you know, is there an opportunity to reform a system that really wasn't created to address certain issues? Or like, what does that look like? And so I really appreciate you diving right into that. Also, in the, the same vein of community, you've talked a lot about, you know, the online meeting and um, young, uh, not only young queer folks, but young folks in general really having um online uh, or meeting on online spaces. Do you feel there's a role, you know, that community plays uh, in addressing some of the needs of queer youth? Um, or, you know, is, is there even a need to discuss community? And I think the way I'm, I'm thinking about it is traditionally, we've obviously thought about community in a different way, but is there a role for community? And creating safety for for queer youth, you think? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna actually divide this into two different sections, right? And if we're talking about sort of community, I, I'm often thinking about like what are your communities of origin, your family, your neighborhood, your school, and then I think a second, um, also intimately related level of community, I think are the folks, the folks that are in your larger network or the folks with whom you build online. And I make this distinction because for young people, there's absolutely you know, maybe the young, the, the, the young person or the people that you, depending on where you live, like you take the bus with or you take the train or you walk to school with or you see those, those spaces and places. Maybe it's um, your community is your religious community, the folks that you, you know, you worship with. Um, maybe it's the immigrant community that you go to or maybe it's um, the people who live on your block, right? So, of course, when we're thinking about the ways that role, the roles the community plays, it's, it is... Um, it is, of course, to primarily create spaces for youth and for LGBT folks to be seen, right? For them to live their full experiences. Um, and then I think on the secondary level, it's the role of, you know, like the idea that young people are building. Um, it is age appropriate for young people to test boundaries. It's age appropriate for young people to begin to distinguish themselves from their communities of origin, from their families, maybe to start exploring their sense of gender, sexuality, um, you know, all those other things, like other pieces of themselves. And so that larger community also plays very much a role in it. So absolutely, community mm-hmm. can play a role in um, creating the conditions under which young people and queer young people can be seen, where they can heard, where their experiences can be valued. Um, I think there's also a space under which where those queer young people uh, can talk about the things that they're going through, which I think is often hard and it creates tensions, right? So the experiences of a young queer person, they might not, maybe, I mean, I think things are certainly changing, but for them to be themselves in their religious community or um, their, the home under which they grew up may or may not be safe. And so uh-huh. when we're thinking about that community generally, 
there's like, yeah, some folks have amazing parents. Some folks have amazing religious community members who, um, you know, are like, are like fluent in conversations about um, sexual orientation and gender identity and the difference between, you know, sort of omnisexual and pansexual. Um, and for other folks, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think there absolutely is a role for community to play in understanding those experiences and um, to understand the experiences of young people, to understand that those experiences are evolving, right? The language is evolving. The norms are evolving. What is acceptable is evolving. Um, and to create a space, again, for young people to talk about what's going on for them, right? And it, it is it is that mix of, um, you know, talking about love, talking about puberty, talking about consent, talking about pregnancy, Um so I think, yeah, there's absolutely a role that community can play. What, what I'll also say to that as well is it doesn't have to be necessarily perfect. I think that often folks are like, if I don't have the language exactly correct, um, if I'm not currently contemporary about it, then like I'm going to fail that young person. I think there's ongoing, there absolutely is ongoing work there. But I think that if you're in relationship with folks, you can kind of build that over time. Um, and it, of course, is your responsibility to kind of um, continually educate yourself because there's, you know, there's framing around the experiences of young people and the experiences of queer folks that's just different now. Yeah. Right? And oh, so it's okay. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, yeah. and so I think, you know, like, here's how, here's how I think about it, right? Like, I identify as queer. Um, but, you know, I, and I think increasingly that's a, a term that's used pretty regularly, but that's not a word that everybody uses or historically uh-huh. has had sort of negative connotations to it. And so I think for, um, a community member, right? To kind of like show up for young people. It might kind of be like maybe taking a step back and listening and seeing what language they use or what is used in their communities and asking questions about how they identify. Because again, like even LGBTQ plus is IA plus can be limiting, right? So it's like, what does it mean to reflect that? And here's what I would say. Like, I think the acceptance that maybe you'll mess up a bit or maybe you won't have the language exactly perfect is is maybe even part of the process. Um, and um, being diligent about wanting to make it work and doing the work necessary, I think is important. So yeah, yeah I think, I don't know, I think the community role is, is a heavy one. And then as I said earlier, I think whether it be the family of origin, your religious community, your spiritual community, your school community, your familial community, um, I think that also bridges, I think for queer young people, I think also in just like these online spaces, which are honestly so diverse and vast and complicated in a whole other way. Because I think in those spaces where queer young people, maybe they haven't found, um, or maybe don't often see folks who look like them or into the things that they're into, maybe where they live, they can find those spaces online. And those spaces online have a mix of, you know, beauty and danger and Uh risk and possibility. um, And, you know, I think for a young queer person or a young adolescent or young person in these communities, there's like, there's, um, there's just so much space 
for so much potential. And, and, and if they're, if their community of origin, right, if like their family is solid or their friend group is solid or their school group is solid, they can probably better navigate all of the yes. things that come out, come from all of those experiences online or, or even just like, I don't know, in the next neighborhood or in the, like, yeah. I don't know, mm-hmm. a couple train stops away because I think for outside sure. of that original sense of, yeah, what's familiar, um, there are so many more possibilities. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I really like that you mentioned uh, that, you know, allies, uh, uh, you know, people that care, people that want to um, really support um, LGBT queer youth, um, you don't have to be perfect and kind of just go in it. And I can speak for myself. I've made a lot of mistakes, but I've stayed in it, right? And I've apologized, maybe for using a wrong term, but I apologize and make it a point to learn from that, right? But I think oftentimes people do think, you know, that you have to like do it a certain way. And I think you also have to, even if you think that, stay open knowing that, you know, there is um, language of all, like you mentioned, and not, you don't have to be perfect. You can learn along the way, you know? Yeah, I, you know what I would say is that I think if you're building a relationship with a queer young person, whether or not they're a victim of dating or sexual violence, is that you can communicate with more than your words, right? You can communicate with your your words, you can communicate with your presence, you can communicate with your tone, you can communicate with how you show up for them. And um, I think it is the combination of all those things uh-huh. that sends a message. Right. And so yeah. when if you're reduced to a text message, of course, you know, if you're reduced to like a text message in all caps, that's going to be right <laughs> a certain way. But if you're sitting across from a young person and you're like, I don't know, deeply listening or asking questions or leaving space or coming off as non-judgmental, um, I think the terms and the language matters, but I think it becomes... It doesn't become secondary, but it becomes less important. I think if you, I think if you're committed to it, if you're committed to that. building that relationship and being open to it, I love that. Um, and again, I think that you know your like, the language will evolve over time to communicate that like trust and love. I think that's what it is. It's like I think that for young people who are going through um, violence in their relationships, particularly uh-huh. one under which somebody that they previously trusted betrayed that trust. Um, uh-huh. What does it mean to to do the opposite of that? To create uh, trust that is like limitless, to create yeah. boundaries, and to create to start to model some of those things. Um, I love you that. know, I think it, yeah, I think for, in my experience of working with you know LGBTQ folks, like you know, at least as a service provider, there's like a little bit of like like um, sort of uh, assessing me. <laughs> Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. or the kind of like okay is this person am I going to be able to trust this person am yeah. I going to be able to talk to this person like where are they coming from mm-hmm. and I think um, you know in my in the the, the the many years that I've been doing that work um, you know I don't always get things perfectly but I think I do try to create the space or a container under which I, I, I try to feel like that that person's experience can be held and then the, the trust builds from there so yeah. in communities, when you're trying to be an ally, when you're trying to be, um, you know, show up for a young person, it is a, what does it mean to create that container uh-huh. um, as a member of the community, trying to create a role for safety, you know, kind of also explaining your role and potentially even what are the limits of your role, right? Uh-huh. Like, 
here's other ways I can help or my role is this, right? Like, so I'm an attorney, right? So when someone comes up to me, say, I'm an attorney, you know, here's like attorney-client privilege, here's, here are the ways that I can help. And then I, and then I also talk about what I can't help with, right? Uh-huh. There's limits to the things that I can help with. So that you set parameters. I think for yeah. young people who've experienced dating or sexual violence, like their boundaries are trampled over. Their experience of the world under are ones are often, not all the time, are often one under which they've been conditioned not to trust people. So uh-huh. when we interrupt those patterns, um, the role of community is really plentiful. And it just starts with, again, just like that baseline, that baseline of relationship building, that relation, that that baseline of like a commitment to change, a commitment to um, understanding language better, uh, uh, and also a commitment to kind of just listening to where that young person is at. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I love everything you said, Andrew. And I think I want to stay in this vein about, you know, um, young queer folks that have experienced either dating or sexual violence. What are some, maybe you have some examples of promising promising practices, right, Um, that... You know, it it could be intervention, it could be services, it could be different things. But do you have any examples or any uh, thoughts on what promising practice looks like? So I I guess I first off want to say, if we're addressing sort of promising practice, I want to acknowledge a couple things. One, Mm -hmm. I think like healing looks different for different people and justice looks different for different people, right? So if we're thinking about... um, young queer folks. And again, I'm using that as an umbrella term to be inclusive of like LGBTQI plus communities is that um, those things can exist on a spectrum or also outside of a spectrum. So I I don't want to be prescriptive as to like, there's this one solution for every person, but I do want to um, acknowledge that there are, um, when we meet young people who are at, the, the solutions can come from those, from those spaces. So on one hand, right, like I think many young people, let's say, just want the violence to stop or just want the harm to stop. And so that can include a conversation with them about what does it mean to keep that person safe? What does it mean to have that the person who caused them harm to address it, to break up with them or to navigate a relationship with them continually in a way that feels or looks a little bit safer? It can include, you know, I think because I'm a lawyer can include like, seeking the protection of the court. It can and has included um, understanding what someone's rights are, and that can include um, whether it be a criminal legal option or a family court or a remedy through school or addressing behavior through a community. Like, what does it look like for them? What are the risks of all of those things? Um, It also can mean, you know, I think for a young person, what has been increasingly a pattern is that they want to play a role in changing the culture of violence, right? And so, like, okay, this thing happened to me, but how do I make sure that this hasn't happened to other people or doesn't happen to other people? Um, and so, there's also kind of like that, that like, um, that like that that community piece. So, um, yeah, I, I think then if we're talking about promising practices, it is um, for me, it is. Um, coming up with like, for lack of a better word, like a menu of options that are available to folks at each step of the way. So, you know, before something becomes, you know, an abusive relationship, like someone might just have questions about it, right? So what does it mean from far this upstream, again, the conversations about body autonomy, consent, 
boundaries, how to Uh say no, how to say yes, how to communicate through conflict, what happens when that person is not responsive. So I think that there's a series of, you know, sort of techniques that I think are just frankly around like how to be in relationship or how to be in community or how to resolve conflict that I think are primary. I think the, the step up from that is, okay, what happens when things go wrong? And I think that that is also a space where it's like, okay, is this something that can be addressed between these two parties or these parties, or does it involve somebody else, right? Like, what does it Mm. mean to escalate? I think that, um, and then I think that goes down the spectrum, right? That can include like, I don't know, talking to parents, talking to a social worker, talking to an advocate, talking to a counselor. That can include, I think from my experience, often include the exploration of legal options, right? Mm -hmm. So there are things, you know, like a protective order, um, an order of custody. Are there special immigration remedies available? Are there remedies available through schools so that you can change your schedule, transfer schools, or even... um, you know, seek other accommodations through education. So I think all of those things are individually based. What I find, um, I guess, I and, beca- and because I think each young person and each queer young person and each queer young person who's experienced dating or sexual violence is different, I think it's just about creating all of those options. Some yeah. folks absolutely want the harm to be addressed in a formalized way that includes, again, potentially the school or administrative process or the legal system. And some folks are like, I need more strategies on how to stay safe, on how to communicate with my partner. Because they're, they might, for a variety of reasons that maybe you've alluded to, like in other po- contexts or co- podcasts, like they're not going to call the police, right? They're not going to potentially leave that relationship. They're not going to, um, um, they're just not going to sort of report in a classic way of reporting. And so I think, that, I think that the thing that works is, that conversation about what what they need to do to keep safe. And then I think, honestly, I think from my perspective, having frank, frank conversations with that young person about what the what the potential outcomes are. So I think that for me, it's like, okay, so let's say I've been working with a young person who's, um, you know, experiencing stalking or violence in their relationship, right? They, that can include everything. Well, like, what does it mean to say no to them? And what are the consequences when you said no or say you've put up a boundary? So I think that there's a response there. I think from my angle, it's it's also like, okay, like, what does it mean to formally say no to tell that person to stop contacting you? What does it mean to, to send, you know, say like, I don't know, like a cease and desist letter <laughs> or, yeah, like, yeah. or like file litigation. You know, for me, it's along that spectrum. And, and, and truth be told, the majority of my practice is around folks who are at sort of that later end where things have escalated, where either the police have been called or the courts are involved or mm-hmm. um, child protective services are involved or schools are involved or kids are involved. And so I'm often coming in at a later stage. Mm-hmm. But I know that my organization as a whole, day one, will work with people sort of along that spectrum, right? What does it mean to, to intervene earlier? Yeah. You know, Andrew, I, um, I I really, I really, really am loving this conversation. And a couple of things have come up for me. Um, you know, is there, is, are there certain considerations in your experience working with young folks that um, are kind of like, is it different for younger folks that are not 18 or, you know, younger, uh, maybe like 15, 16, 17, 18? Does the work look different? And I guess yeah. I'm particularly interested in, in talking about, there was a study done at the national level a few years ago um, about help-seeking behaviors and how um, a lot of survivors, it was just a broad um, 
survey done, but a lot of survivors uh, went to seek for help and either the police were called or, you know, CPS was called or whatever. So my question to you is, when you're working with the younger, younger folks, are there different considerations? Is there a time that you have to involve the parents? You know, what does that look like? Yeah, so that it, this is a great question, and I would say it's a, in you know in some ways it's similar, in some ways it's entirely different. The ways that's entirely different are around you know young people's you know in a legal framework that thinks of young people or young people under the age of eighteen as not having capacity to make their own decisions, um, not having agency, um, sort of being quote unquote infants under the law. What does it mean for young people to be in relationships? And so that very much means to what extent is that person able to make you know, reasonably informed choices about their decisions and to what extent you involve their parents. Uh So it is actually entire, in some ways it's entirely different because, um, because the younger you go, you know, young people are still developing. Right. And so a while a 15 year old may very much know exactly what they want, we know that they're still sort of on their path of growth that might look very differently than a 24 year old or a 30 year old or even a 21 year old. And so in that space, you always have to factor in, right? Like, who gets involved and when. And so when do parents get involved? When do school administrators get involved? And frankly, you know, I think this is what I was saying earlier about like being clear about your role. Uh Um, What does it mean to explain to young people upfront what your role is and what are the limits of your role? And so let's say you're working with a young person who's 17 years old and has experienced um, dating or sexual violence in the relationships, what does it mean for them to report that, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for that to escalate to a school counselor who then might need to, feels like they need to tell a dean or a principal or get a parent involved? Well, if that young person is not about out about their sexual orientation or gender identity or that they're having sex or that they're in a relationship at all, um, what are the unintended consequences That's of right. that? Right. Um, what are the unintended consequences? Again, if we're holding the complexity of young people all at the same time, what does it mean for that young person who's experienced harm? And what does it mean for the young person who's caused harm? Right. And so like that young person who's caused harm, what does it mean for them to be outed to, to their mm-hmm. family or community? Does that have unintended consequences? So I think the advice that I give, and I think this like looks different in different jurisdictions, but I think you know, from where I practice, it's often about meeting the in-person where they're at and then just being really clear about yes. your role. So I think for young folks under the age of 18, um, that has implications not only to the extent that they they get, there's parent involvement, there's potentially school involvement. And then what does it mean for them online, right? Like if, if queer young people are known, sort of like social media can be a complete mess. <laughs> and for mm-hmm. young queer people, that's the space where they can find out um, about people who may look like them or may experience the world like them, what does it mean for them to be in those online spaces as well? And what does it mean to protect them there? So, you know, everything, you know, there's efforts, everything from like age verification um, to creating spaces that are specifically for LGBTQ youth. And what does it mean to create those spaces and also have those spaces be responsive? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's totally different. Well, I wouldn't, I'm not saying it's totally different. I would say that there's there's additional layers of texture to it that distinguish it from working with, let's say, somebody who's who's above the age of 18 or 21. Yeah, yeah I, I really, you know, I love this part. And I know that I'm just trying to think of my days as a, an advocate when I was doing, um, you know, direct services. Uh, 
do you feel that the relationship, so a lot of this work with not only young uh, queer uh, um, youth, but just youth in general, and I think survivors more broadly has to do with what you've been talking about, which is trust and relationship building, right? And just the ongoing being there and, as you're saying, also explaining the limits of your role, like the limits within your role. Do you feel that, you know, as for a service provider that may be nervous, right, about any information that may come to them, um, do you feel that the relationship can survive, I guess, between the service provider and the young person that's going through it? Or Because I, I, I hear you, right? It's like, there's, there's a lot of different, there's different considerations and there are very delicate, you know, situations where you don't want to out um, um, someone that hasn't shared. So do you feel that it's possible for a service provider to preserve that trusting relationship with the young person? And if so, do you think it's about being honest and setting, you know, the, uh, the not boundaries, but like talking about your role, right? Yeah, it's about the, it's about, it is about boundaries. It's about, you know, it's the signals that you send. It is the container that you create. So in this container, let's say I'm working with a young person who's experiencing violence in their relationship, you know, and again, I have the privilege of being an attorney so I can create a container that includes attorney-client privilege. Well, I can say what my role is. Here's, I can advise you on your legal options. I want to know the full extent about what's going on. I can't, I'm not going to tell anyone about these things. And, you know, here are the folks on my team. So I might be working with co-counsel. I'll tell them about what is going on in the case so that they know each step of the way what, um, why I'm asking them these questions and what Mm -hmm. I'm going to do with that information. And so one of the things that I often do with young people when I'm trying to build a relationship of trust and confidences or queer young people is to tell them why I'm asking this question. So I'm asking about your immigration status, because sometimes there's special immigration remedies are available. Sometimes I'm asking about sexual orientation or gender identity because it helps me understand mm. like a level of risks. And then, so I'm often asking, so can you tell me a little bit about more about why you made this choice? I think often there's this um, idea that like a service provider is going to come from like a really victim blaming place. Like, how could you do that? You knew the risks. Whereas for me, it's like, it's like, help me understand this so that I can help mm-hmm. shape um, I can understand the options that are available to you, but also the potential risks. So, you know, another way that I'll, I'll, I'll frame it would be like, can you tell me a little bit more about, I don't know, the time that you pushed back or fought back or like, you know, used marijuana or like smoked a joint after what happened? Because then I can, and the reason I ask is because I'm trying to understand the ways under which that could potentially be used against you, right? Or can you tell yeah. me, can you tell me about like what it was like day to day, day to day in the relationship? Can you tell me about those messages we received? Can you tell me about mm-hmm. the way that that person touched you and what they said? And I think that is that space where I'm, you know, always navigating a relationship. Yeah. In that case, it's like, I'm not asking these things out of the blue. You know, one of the first things I learned as an advocate was to not go sightseeing in people's lives. Um, and I think- Oh, I like meaning, that. <laughs> yeah, you know, essentially the idea that I'm just not going to like go go around just for the purpose of like, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out with like the intimate details. I'm asking for a reason. I'm asking so that I can understand more about your story and that I can build off of that so I can find out where are your opportunities for remedies and then where are the risks. 
Um, I think in my case, it's always really important to talk about what the risks are as well, because I think I'm not going to create some idyllic version of the criminal legal system or the legal system under which like, like, yeah, if you come forward, everything's going to be fine or like this process is going to be really easy. You know, I, I think these processes are often by nature really adversarial and I wouldn't want to can, um, to mislead a young person or any, any survivor or queer young person about like the things that are, um, the things that are built into that process, um, because the things that are built into that process can be, um, uh, you know, like really horrible. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Andrew, just a couple more questions. I I want to ask you about uh, your thoughts or maybe where, you know, the, the field is broad, you know, and as we've been talking about, there have been some advances and there's still... Um, you know, ways to go in certain areas. Um, is there anywhere that you feel uh, that you feel um, as a as a movement, as a as a field, we're falling short? Where is there a particular place that comes to mind when you think about growth for young queer folks that are experiencing teen dating violence or dating violence? Yeah. Um, I think where we're falling short is like two two spaces in particular. At least these are the ones that come to mind now. One is the limitations of the legal system to to kind of often hold the complexity of queer young people and the the complexity of their experiences. And so I'm in court all the time, and I actually think that the legal system can be an important tool to address harm, to 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 get people remedies for folks to seek protection. Um, and right, like I think where it falls short is really in this ability to hold the complexity of like all of the things that that queer youth experience and um, fitting it into a really binary understanding of harm, uh-huh. right? And so often um, in the context of LGBTQ domestic violence, there's, um, there's uh, you know, the person who causes harm and the person who experiences harm. And often what I struggle with in the legal system is, you know, is to tell the story of that that holds a complexity under which somebody is actually experiencing harm and the person who experienced harm might not feel great about all of the choices that they made either, right? right. So what often happens is, at least, you know, in my experience with, with LGBTQ folks in the legal system, is that like, okay, if they were anything less than the perfect victim, then that leads very much to the assumption that they were equally to blame, right? Or, mm. and then if you layer on top of that, the experiences of, of queer people who don't present in sort of a in a gender binary sort of way, right? Okay, they're by their expression and by their pronouns and by their behaviors, they're operating outside of this sort of like cisgender heterosexual paradigm. Then they're automatically suspicious. <laughs> and so, or and so, and yeah. I say that because I think when we're building when we're building up a new system or we're trying to meet young people or and queer people where they're at, it's it's I want to build a, a a world under which advocacy includes the complexity of all those things. Yes. Just because that the experiences of a young queer person who's going to court is not something that the court sees very often doesn't make it any less valid, right? And so that, right. that that non-binary person who's seeking protection from someone who might identify as cisgender or that cisgender person who's experiencing harm from someone who, I don't know, someone who's not necessarily from their exact community. Like, we have to hold all those complexities and not assign um, the stereotypes that we have about those communities. Right. <laughs> and, so, right. and so I guess that all that to say that in the context of, like, litigating um 
holding the complexity of of advocating for somebody who's experiencing um, harm that goes in a direction that they are experiencing it, that their life is getting smaller, that they're experiencing, you know, violence in its many forms, emotional, sexual, verbal, financial, other things. You can also hold that they're not a perfect person. And just because they're not a perfect person doesn't mean they, it makes the violence mutual, right? Or, mm. or, that it, or, that it, or that it makes it sort of even. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is falling short is I think at that bridge of that intersection between um, young people and their experiences online is, is, you know, gosh, actually I have many things to say about this, but one of the things that I'll say is that because of the rise of the increase of like, you know, artificial intelligence or the ability yes. to, to fake, um, fake images, right? Deep fakes of the ability to create or spoof text messages or email addresses is that like it kind of fundamentally undermines like in a traditional legal system sense of like what is true. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when we think about addressing these harms, particularly for young people and queer people, um, the systems that, as they currently exist will need to adapt because you can frankly fake almost everything. And yeah. here's what I would say. I think that the error that the the system, quote unquote, often makes in that regard is to um, is to then require like increasing levels of proof for something to be real. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, I mean, this might be getting a little bit more like litigation focused, but I think people can speak to the messages that they experience that, that they receive. They can speak to their relationship with the person that caused them harm. They can think about the the you know, the frequency and nature of the messages that they got, the the context under which um, they experience harm as ways to kind of pin down actually what's real or to identify what's real. But I, I mean, I would say, but, and I would say that generally it's getting, it will get harder to, um, to do that work without a certain amount of diligence. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, so we have one last question, sadly. Uh, and it's a little twofold. I, I would say, you know, we have a lot of the listeners. It's a spectrum, right? Uh, where there are people that are in it, doing the work, um, you know, much like the organizations uh, that you work with. Um, but then there are others, you know, whether it's coalitions, service providers, advocates uh, that wonder what are maybe one or two steps that they can take towards Um, promoting, you know, healthy, progressive LGBTQ uh, youth responses when it comes to dating or sexual violence. Is there there maybe two things that come to mind uh, that can help those folks when they're developing policy, developing practices? Um, Yeah. You know, I I don't know if I can necessarily limit myself to two things, but what I will say is that there's a lot of work. Well, you don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what I will say, yeah, I will say that there's there's a lot of resources out there that I think you could adapt to where you live, right? And so there mm-hmm. are folks around the country who are organizing, even if your state already has, like, I don't know, um, healthy relationships and sex ed education. Like, is it LGBTQ inclusive? Is it, right. you know, sort of meeting the mark as it relates to the kind of online threats that young people mm-hmm. are facing, that LGBTQ mm-hmm. people are facing. So I think that there's always, that that is an active conversation that yeah. is happening, I think, in the world. And then I think that there are, like, plenty of parallels um, between, I think, like, LGBTQ youth and the reproductive rights movement. So there's, you know, there's great resources on, like, Planned Parenthood. You know, there's, like, yeah. great resources, um, 
you know, around people who are doing that intersection of gender-based violence and reproductive justice. And I think, again, you don't, I don't think you need to start from a place of expertise, but you can start from a place of curiosity. Yeah. And in that space, there's so much, there's so much where people can grow. Um, yeah. And then I would say the other thing is that I think around technology-based abuse, there, you know, I, 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 I practice in New York City and there's a great task force here, a cyber abuse task force, where it's like literally a collection of you know, advocates, survivors, service providers, attorneys, other folks who are working on these issues. So I think it's to try to identify the folks in your community who are doing that work and Mm -hmm. are doing the work on the vanguard and to build with them. Because I think whether it be a conference or whether it be a website or whether it even be like in this day and age, like like a webinar, you're going to find those resources. And then I think you can build from there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I would say that I think it's, I think it's, it's build, you know, in the community where you're from and then like look to, Look to the folks on the national level who are doing this work because I think they also have they have answers and they have models. There are people who've yeah. done this stuff before. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, there's so sure some ones that I love that are that are sort of teen specific. There's an organization called Safe Bay, and they okay. do a really great um, campaign called No Before You Nude. There's a great organization called NTAB that addresses technology-based abuse. Um, you know, there's a cyber abuse task force here in New York City. There's, you know, day one, <laughs> yeah. you know, where I work. Yeah. Um, gosh, and I think around the, you know, even like there's great resources on like the Trevor Project or, you know, like, you know, I, I, I think that there's just so many places where if you are struggling with um, language or terminology, there's just, I think there's so many resources there to kind of figure out like what what is sort of sort of the contemporary vibe on that and mm-hmm. and I think for the young person that you're meeting in your life who's working it through like I don't know like there's TikTok stuff that's cool <laughs> you know there's like, yeah there's some good there's some good Instagrams that you yeah. can follow yeah um, yeah so I think that there's not a shortage of those resources I think that there's you know, I will say that there's also like a media literacy moment because there's also a lot of like not great resources out there. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think that the conversation that you have with that young person is, again, to sort of meet them where they're at, to create a container, a space where you can hold the complexity of their experiences. And then also, you know, they're probably getting a lot of mixed messages as well. So what does it mean to be in conversation with them about, again, boundaries, consent, harm, what feels good, what um, what is violence, recognizing signs, um, primary prevention, secondary intervention, um, um, prevention. And then again, like, as a resource, what is necessary if you need to contact, you know, what if you need to escalate it? Do you need to bring in a parent, a, a school administrator? Um, is, the, is the level of violence one under which you know, there's not really a resource available other than contacting law enforcement, and, and mm-hmm. to kind of not be judgmental about that. If that's if that's if that's what that young person needs yeah. to do, um, yeah, yeah, they're on yeah. a journey that is that might be like yours or might be totally different from yours. Different, yeah. You know, thank you so much, Andrew. This has been a wealth of information, and I know, I know, it's going to be so useful and helpful. Thank you so much for your time. It's been, of course, a pleasure. And we're really looking forward to airing this episode. And again, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a, a great pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. It's been a really, it's been really great to have this conversation with you. And now to conclude today's episode, we would love to share with you a poem titled A Litany for Survival by Audrey Lord. 
For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone. For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going, in the hours between dawns, looking inward and outward at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures, like bread in our children's mouths so that their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. For those of us who were imprinted with fear, like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk, for by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hoped to silence us. For all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we're afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we're afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we're afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we're afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we're afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak remembering we were never meant to survive. Thank you for listening to the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. Remember, you can reach us by emailing us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, the pivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very warm and special thank you to Chance Taylor for all his hard work in editing each episode and to Jesenia Gorbea Sufolini and DJPA for their brilliance and ongoing support in producing the podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Wendy Mota. <laughs>